0: This is AM Rush Sports. I'm your host, Alex Mitchell. Today we're bringing on AM New York Sports Editor Joe Pantorno to talk about the New York Jets picking up Frank Gore to add to the backfield in addition to Le'Veon Bell. After that, we're going to talk about some of the most memorable and iconic moments in New York baseball, and actually we're going to debunk a bunch of myths about them too. So, Joe, we're going to go to you now. So now more than ever... To me, it feels like when there's a big signing or anything going on in sports, particularly football, it's especially energetic and exciting now, such as what the New York Jets did by bringing in veteran running back Frank Gore.
1: Yeah, uh, Alex, I'm, I'm going to agree with you here. It's it's at this point where we're kind of clutching for content in a way, um, and the Jets signing Gore is obviously not only noteworthy just because it's a, a big NFL star, but it's it's also, you know, who the player is. Uh, Frank Gore is the uh, third highest rusher in NFL history. He has over 15,000 yards in his career. He's bound for Canton, Ohio. Uh, it's, it's only a matter of time. This is just one more stop on his whole of fame career. So um, obviously it's a big pickup for the Jets. Uh, again, Jets fans really shouldn't expect much in terms of thinking that, uh, Frank Gore is going to be, you know, the Frank Gore he was five, eight years ago, but uh, still a noteworthy signing, still a, a big name to put in the backfield, and another name to kind of change the culture around the Jets' locker room.
0: So when I think of this signing, it almost reminds me of when Brandon Jacobs returned to the Giants, when he re-signed with them for the second Super Bowl run, because Frank Gore is almost kind of the last of that powerhouse breed of running backs. Of course, you see it more in a modern form, but, you know, those guys were 18-wheelers. It was just, you know, running mad and halfback dive, and and you got four or five yards at a time. And um, so do you think that the Jets drafted around doing this?
1: I I, I think they— they probably had it in the back of their minds. And and specifically, I guess I'm referring to uh, head coach Adam Gaze here because he's worked with uh, Frank Gore in the past. He was his head coach with the Miami Dolphins in 2018. And he constantly sings the guy's praises. Uh, He spoke about it earlier this year, about Gore's work ethic and how he still goes hard in practice. And, you know, this is a guy that's going to be 37 years old this month. Um, And he's still playing like he's a a 21, 22-year-old back that's you know, trying to make it off the practice squad or something like that. Um, and for a backfield that uh, is kind of up in the air because we've we, we've known that Adam Gaze isn't too keen on the contract that the Jets gave to Le'Veon Bell. Um, this is really Gaze's kind of move of saying, "Okay, I'm bringing in one of my guys here," and uh, it's it's not you know threatening Le'Veon Bell for his starting job, but it's just. Somebody to kind of build in, uh, you know, build his culture uh, with, kind of start building the Jets in, in, um, in his likeness in a way.
0: So, do you think that the Jets, or let me rephrase it, because of course, you know, both the Jets and the Giants need a lot of, lot of fine tuning, to put it politely. What else can the Jets do, or what should they be looking for to build around Gore now?
1: Uh, really not much. Um, I think it's it's vital for Jets fans to go into the 2020 season understanding that Frank Gore is solely the backup, where he's going to be a you know, a short, down-and-distance kind of guy where he's going to come in and, like you alluded to, he's going to put his head down and he's going to just eat up as many yards as he can. Uh, There's it's not going to be anything flashy to it. He's almost like the anti-Le'Veon Bell in a way where – Bell's running style is patience and and cutting and, and nimble uh, is nimbleness at the at the line and waiting for those holes to open up. Frank Gore is like you said is one of those old fashioned steamrollers where he's going to come in and he's going to you know just give what the defense will uh, take what the defense is giving to him. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to allude to the Giants of old in a way, um, but you can almost see Gore being the Thunder to Le'Veon Bell's lightning in the way that we all thought in 2000-2001, Ron Dane was going to be the Thunder to Tiki Barber's lightning. Uh, obviously, the Jets will be hoping that the results are much better than that.
0: The Thunder to is lightning. I like that. I think that's a perfect way to describe the situation. And like you were talking about, with him being a veteran, mature presence in the locker room, do you think that when Gore comes into this situation – Maybe it's not necessarily a retirement position in going to New York. I know uh, the Jets have a history of that, of bringing in athletes whose, you know, days of glory not had passed, but they had reached their zenith and were coming down and wanted to retire in a, you know, in New York in a, a beautiful setting. But do you think that Gore has a little more on his mind in a sense that he thinks that he could squeeze out a championship with them?
1: Uh, it would take an awful lot, and the Jets have a ton of work to do, really, to enter that championship conversation. That being said, the AFC East is as open as it's been probably in the last 20 years or so, because it looks like the Patriots are uh, beatable, and uh, suddenly we're going to the 2020 season thinking that, hey, you know what, this actually might be, say, the Buffalo Bills' division. So I, I really don't think Gore is joining the Jets with the expectations of winning a championship. I think that would be uh way too lofty but i think gore is brought in to kind of show that hey i can still do this number one um and number two is he's going to come in and be that role model really not for anybody in the jets backfield but somebody who is working closely with the first team offense who can be in sam darnold's ear and just kind of tell a, a young developing quarterback kind of what to look for um say in uh pass protection schemes um Also, he becomes a security blanket out of the backfield uh, if Le'Veon Bell is either struggling or not available. Uh, So obviously that provides vital depth should, um, you know, the unspeakable happen in a way. Um, So really, I think it's, it's the Jets trying to mark off a couple of boxes to move in the right direction, but it's not really finding that final piece or two for a championship puzzle.
0: And as I referenced earlier, it seems like that's what the Jets do when they sign a big name. It's someone who was a big name five seasons ago, even more. You look at Brett Favre, LT, uh, who are some others? You must know.
1: Uh, Chris Johnson is one oh, yeah. uh, that also comes to mind. Um, yeah, you know, they they do have a tendency to do this and... Um, And, and, you know, I've said it for years and I've said it for years because my father has said it for years in a way the Jets are the Mets of football where whatever can go wrong will go wrong or their big (laughs) moves are signing players that are, you know, just a little bit too past their prime.
0: They're not past the expiration date, but uh, you got to get them in the oven if you if you want to cook it.
1: (laughs) That's a perfect way to look at it.
0: And, uh, I hope you enjoy your Cinco de Mayo because we're recording this the day before. Since we're on the topic of cooking, and uh, get a margarita for me. We could all use one, um, Joe. Before we move on, any final thoughts on the Jets' pickup on Gore?
1: Um, I, you know, I, I said it before. I think it's just a a crucial culture move, and um, you know, really, the Jets didn't have much else in the backfield uh, behind Le'Veon Bell, so just to bring in somebody with that kind of experience with that kind of pedigree who you know is going to take his job seriously, no matter where he is on the depth chart. Um, And he's going to come in and push for as much playing time as he can get. That's exactly what Adam Gaze wants. That's exactly what the Jets and Jets fans should want too. So um, I think it's a great signing. Uh, Obviously it's a one-year deal, so you're not going to lose much. And uh, hopefully he still has a, a little bit left in the tank where, you know what, this is, uh, you know, 2020 won't be the end for
0: Frank Gore. I would would love to see him, even if it's not playing for a championship, like you said, the AFC East, you know, it's like ding dong, the witch is dead, Tom Brady's out of New England, who knows what's going on with Belichick up there. It really is an open game. And you've also just taken a veteran presence from an interdivision rival to now play for you, and even if he's not, like you said, he's going to bring more, it seems, to a mentality to the Jets than anything. Of course, you put him in a clutch situation, he's likely to come up big, but he also knows about what Buffalo is doing. So in addition to having something that could push you over the edge against New England, you now have another adversary within your division not as formidable because their running back knows what they've been doing. And you can almost imagine that he's going to help Gates coach around that.
1: Right. And, And for the first time, really, in a long time, it's not going into a season with blind, unreasonable optimism. You're suddenly going into a season with legitimate hope, where you're not sitting here wondering, okay, well, you know what, if... Tom Brady gets injured and Bill Belichick uh, has a falling out with ownership and the Patriots lose half their offensive line and uh, you know, their defense forgets how to rush the passer. Well, then the jets might have a chance if they somehow win nine games with a roster that should really be winning five. Um, Suddenly it's the AFC East is anybody's division. Uh, The jets are in the process of rebuilding um, as legitimately as they have in recent years so again it's I I want to say this with with cautious optimism because you don't want to put uh, the cart before the horse in a way but there's a reason for hope and legitimate hope heading into 2020 so you'd like to think that maybe say looking back next year Jets fans can look back and say hey you know what Frank Gore was a it was a really big signing it might not move the uh move the meter much on paper but you know what he was huge for us so um You know, hopefully, Jets fans, it's all right, especially in times like this.
0: You know, cautious optimism. I don't think there are two words that describe the current state of the union for New York sports any better than cautious optimism. (laughs) It seems like no matter what situation you apply it to, it's just, it could happen. And uh, hopefully the confidence comes back where it's no longer, yeah, it, it looks like it could be aligned to a point where it's like, how the heck are they not? So we'll see about that. And the NFL schedules come out later this week on Thursday, I believe. But another report came out about the prospect of baseball returning on July 1st. And you and I have talked a lot about that. We don't need to, once again, get into the nuances of bringing the season back. If anyone wants to listen to that that hasn't heard it, we've done so many AM Rush Sports episodes talking about ways to bring back baseball and Uh, Just quickly, what is the latest on the projection of how it's going to come back?
1: Well, it's it's a report from almost an unlikely source of ways. It's two former players, uh, Trevor Plouffe and Phil Hughes, uh, who claim that they have sources close to uh, Major League Baseball organizers. And they said that the league right now is looking at the possibility of having a spring training Um, beginning on June 10th, and then having opening day on July 1st. Um, All teams would play in their ballparks, and it it almost sounds too good to be true, uh, just given the state of things right now. And um, while their reports kind of got everybody excited, uh, I think including us, you know, there have been other noted legitimate baseball reporters from pretty big outlets that kind of came in and, and tampered those expectations and Said, wait, you know, kind of hold on a sec. Don't get too far ahead of yourselves here thinking that this would be some kind of definite because there's obviously so much uh, that needs to be done for, you know, even teams to get to this second spring training in five weeks or so. Um, and obviously right now uh, that can't happen, but you know, hopefully things can kind of work out in the way things have in South Korea, where, you know, they went from a pretty bad spot to playing baseball today. So, um, yeah, who knows? It's, 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 more, it's as much speculation as it is reporting at this point, because we're, we're flying blind in this whole situation. So I'd like to think that they might know something that we don't know, but at the same time, you're, you're taking everything with a grain of salt.
0: Of course, and as we discussed before, there must be a lot of uneasiness about coming into play in New York if this new three-division based on geography uh, attempt is going to actually become ratified into baseball. So we talked about this, and again, if you want to hear our whole spiel on this, there's an awesome episode of AM Rush Sports that we put together, the longest we ever put together. I personally think, have the Yankees and Mets play up at Cooperstown. You could fly into it easy. You could put mobile clubhouses next to the field. It still has a legitimate feel of baseball, and there's just less risk involved as opposed to playing empty games in what is kind of the epicenter of the American coronavirus outbreak. But before we jump too, too into this, in the prospect that baseball will return this summer. I want to talk to you about some of the greatest moments to ever happen in New York baseball. Now, I've come up with a list. I'm sure that you have some of your own picks, and some of the ones that I've come up with, it goes beyond the Mets and Yankees. It goes back some years, and what I'm going to talk about I know is going to spur some reactions. So, on this list, I'm going to start off with when Babe Ruth called his shot. And I'm bringing this up for a specific reason. Because just like everyone that thinks they saw a UFO, although actually with what the Pentagon recently released, maybe it's not the case with that, there's always a a cold and rational explanation to the story and and the fable that Babe Ruth points to center field, calls that he's going to Jack a home run, and he does. And, Joe, I think you know the story behind this.
1: Uh, Yeah, wow. Uh, That's a a pretty big one to start off with. Um, Yeah, so, again, without doing much research here, I'll I'll speak about, I guess, what I know. Um, The called shot came in the 1932 World Series Game 3 against the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. Charlie Root was the pitcher. And, yeah, apparently Babe Ruth uh, majestically pointed to center, and he... Uh, he called his shot, except the problem was that there's been a ton of conflicting stories over the years um, where, you know, he was getting flack from Cubs fans at Wrigley Field, and he was gesturing to them, or he was, in a way, kind of trash-talking Charlie Root, because I believe he got ahead of him in the count, um, either 0-1 or 0-2, and was pointing at him. Uh, but again, well, it's something we'll never know, and the fact that Ruth didn't you know, really kind of go much into the situation or divulge much about it, um, you know, kind of says a lot and adds to that mythic proportion. Uh, you know, he just kind of said, and I pointed, and, uh, you know, the good Lord was with me that day. I think that was his story until he died. Um, so it's it's one of those moments where it's a, did it or did it not happen? Um, I think a lot of baseball fans in their heart of hearts kind of wish that it did um, I know there have been some really compelling reports over the year that, uh, years that kind of disprove it. And, um, you know, off the top of my head, I, 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 can't recall them right now, but if you have the time do a little bit of research on it, cause there are some really cool tidbits that you can find out. And there's also some really interesting conspiracies about the whole situation too. And, um, I, I think it's one of the more colorful moments of, uh, of baseball history. And obviously we know what happens is, uh, you know, Ruth hit the home run. He puts the Yankees ahead. I think it was like a four four game in like the fifth inning or so at the time. Um, and the Yankees, uh, you know, they win and they, they go on and win the series. And, uh, you know, at the time that was only, uh, 20, 24 years since the Cubs last world series. So, uh, after that 32 world series, they had to, they had to wait a pretty long time until they actually won one.
0: Oh, they certainly did. And the the story I've heard about this is, like you said, more than the fans, he was getting jeered from the Cubs' dugout. And he extends his arm, holding two fingers because there, it was a two-strike count. And he's stretching his arm out going, that's two strikes, as he points out. And then he hits the home run. But like you said, it has like an X-Files feel to it. It's like, I want to believe.
1: Right, and and it's you kind of mentioned like it's like somebody seeing a UFO, and what adds to it is this hazy, fuzzy picture of Ruth at bat. And sure enough, he is extending his arm, but it's not some grand point, you know, where his arm is completely straight out and he's clearly gesturing to center field or left center field or right center field. It's just it's like this harmless little like bent at the elbow, uh, almost like waist high kind of point where it's just, you know, it looks unassuming enough. But it um, really it's 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 such a it's such a fun story to kind of speculate about. uh, um, Really, it is uh, Major League Baseball's version of, say, Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. (laughs) So it's I, I, I think it's a lot of fun.
0: And uh, this next moment I'm going to bring up what I believe is roughly 20 years down the line involves two teams in baseball that used to play in New York and now they've settled in California. And the reason I'm bringing up the shot heard around the world with Bobby Thompson and the New York Giants versus the Brooklyn Dodgers in it was it was the one game playoff, correct?
1: Uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was a three-game playoff, and this was game three of the playoff to decide the National League pennant.
0: So Bobby Thompson hits his shot heard around the world, but there was an issue there that actually relates to a more modern scandal in baseball, and I want you to talk about that.
1: Right. So the way the Polo Grounds is set up, uh, for those who don't know, it was probably the most eclectic, odd setup that you will see in a baseball stadium where it was, uh, you know, extremely short uh, down both the left field and right field line and uh, completely cavernous out in center field to the point where the stadium was shaped like a U. And uh, one of the, I guess, quirks of the stadium is that um, the teams entered from their clubhouses all the way out in center field. So say about 500 plus feet away and there were steps leading up to the clubhouse and, uh, you know, that's how they would get to their locker rooms and everything like that. Um, there was obviously, uh, the the batter's eye in center field, um, in a way there was a, a big kind of extending wall kind of behind the stands that had, you know, windows and big advertisements and stuff like that. So, um, Really what the, again, I'll use the word myth is, um, is that Thompson's uh, Thompson shot heard around the world was, uh, everybody kind of saw it coming in terms of uh, a Giants standpoint where um, Dodgers pitcher Ralph Branca, who gave up the home run, uh, accused the Giants of stealing signs, uh, where somebody was camped out with a telescope out in center field, somehow relayed the signs to Bobby Thompson, and he was able to... kind of get around on a fastball that was high and inside where uh, Branche was convinced that nobody would know it was coming and uh, wouldn't have been able to catch up to it that quick. And he was able to turn on it and deposit deposit it into the left field seats.
0: It just amazes me that... Now, uh, obviously you and I haven't lived through it, but was that as big of a controversy at the time as what's going on with Houston is now?
1: Uh, I really don't think so. Um, You know, it it was more, I guess at the time, treated like a conspiracy theory or it was just this, okay, well, it's a well-known fact that teams in Major League Baseball steal signs, so we're going to hush-hush about it. And um, it is what it is. And that year, uh, it didn't lead to a World Series. They lost to, uh, I believe they lost to the Yankees in the World Series uh, in 51. Um, and they actually didn't win their World Series until '54. I think it was three years later. Um, but it, it, it's funny again because we we didn't live, you know, we didn't live through it, obviously. But I wasn't, you know, it wasn't until I was older uh, where I really started hearing the stories about how the Giants probably stole the signs and uh, kind of how Thompson was given an unfair advantage in a way, but. Uh, yeah, certainly timely to talk about that now, considering that uh, nobody should be forgetting about what the Astros did. Uh, they're getting a, a little bit of a reprieve here with this coronavirus freeze, but uh, you know they'll certainly be feeling the full force of jeers uh, once baseball starts back up with fans.
0: As I've told you before, if New York Ranger fans still scream, Potvin sucks in Madison Square Garden... Jose Altuve and the rest of the Houston Astros are not getting let off easy whenever fans are allowed to go to baseball games again, particularly in the Bronx.
1: Yeah, as it should be.
0: And speaking of the Bronx, this next moment involves the New York Yankees. It is when Jackie Robinson stole home on Yogi Berra. Again, I'm going for controversy today.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, this was uh, – this is an iconic moment in ways, and it's actually one of the more famous pictures involving uh, Jackie Robinson. Um, I, I kind of grew up as a, as a pseudo historian of his. He was a, he was a hero of mine growing up, so I've had a lot of uh, you know I picked up a lot of books and illustrations and and memorabilia and artifacts along the way, and really it's one of those headlining photos where you you know see him sliding in towards home plate with. Uh, you know, with the camera shot behind Berra. So it looks like he's kind of sliding at you and and Berra's in between him and the camera. Um, Yeah, so that steal, that was in game one of the 1955 World Series. Um, And the Dodgers actually went on to lose that game. And uh, so so obviously it it really didn't matter much. But uh, if you look at it from any of the angles provided in... uh, and and there really aren't a lot of angles. It it looks like he's out. Um, I mean, it, it just looks like the umpire missed the call. I mean, Yogi had plenty of time. Pitch came in, put the tag down low. It looks like Jackie actually slid into the glove. And uh, yeah, for what it was worth, uh, the umpire called him safe. But uh, the Yankees won the game six five. But uh, I'd be re- I'd be remiss in saying that uh, you know the Dodgers actually were able to nab one from the Yankees in 1955. It was their only World Series that they ever won while they were in Brooklyn, dating back to uh, the 1870s. Yeah, and, and as,
0: uh, uh, as Billy Joel said, you know, Brooklyn's got a winning team. That's what that was in reference to.
1: Yeah, yep, exactly. So it's, uh, you know, thankfully it didn't really uh, affect the outcome of the entire series, and luckily it didn't affect the outcome of the game. Um, but yeah, at least, uh, at least really on the resumes of Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese and Duke Snyder and Gil Hodges and Roy Campanella, um, and Walter Alston, the manager and Carl Erskine and Don Newcomb and Johnny Padres and Sandy Amoros and Jimmy Gilliam and, and Billy Cox and Carl Ferrillo all those guys, they can at least say that they got a world series because they meant so much, uh, for Brooklyn. Uh, and they were the city's identity in that time and they were constantly, the class of the national league really for, um, a decade plus spell there. And, uh, you know, it really, it it doesn't really mean much to me, but there were millions of Brooklynites back in the day where that was their consolation prize. And it was something for them to hold on to after the organization moved to Los Angeles. And, uh, it's something that, you know, you, you run into the occasional old timer. It still means everything to them.
0: Of course. And, uh, I'm sure, you know, the, uh, The old joke, too, about uh, shooting Walter O'Malley, the Brooklyn Dodgers owner, twice. If you are in a room with three evil people, him being one of them, you have a gun with only two bullets. Who do you shoot? O'Malley twice. But um, (laughs) The next moment I have comes from the late 70s. It is a New York moment that took place in Boston. I think you know where I'm going with this. But before we jump too ahead in time, I'm sure you must have one from the New York Mets before that.
1: Uh yeah obviously really when when you talk about the history of the Mets that that first big moment uh, I guess before we get into the 70s is the miracle Mets of 1969 where it delivered you know New York National League baseball with a winner and uh it 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 was such an improbable run because they had been uh doormats in the National League since they were founded in 1962 and then Something happened, some sort of cosmic, uh, you know, revelation where uh, everything just kind of came together for the Mets and, uh, you know, they won 100 games in 1969 and they shocked the world and uh, defeated a really strong Baltimore Orioles team, which boasted, uh, you know, some, some really great players, Jim Palmer, Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, Luke Powell. Uh, their future manager Davey Johnson, um, you know, so they 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 kind of were like the first real Cinderella story uh, in, in baseball because you really you really couldn't have much of that. Uh, 1969 was the first year where they instituted uh, playoffs of the way. There were uh, there was a National League Championship Series. Uh, they defeated the Braves in 1969 to move on to the World Series, where obviously a lot of us know that before then, uh, before then uh, if you just finished first in the league, uh, you went straight to the World Series. So, um, yeah, it was uh, kind of this, kind of fueled the notion that, hey, every once in a while, the little guy can, you know, come around and, and shock the world, and uh, it's obviously a huge feather in the Mets cap still to this day. And uh, you know, a guy like my dad, he's still that—that uh, that was his childhood. that he was his childhood. And, uh, for for Mets fans, it's it's one of those shining moments that they can really hold on to. And um, it's 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 one thing that that kind of sets the Mets apart from the Yankees. Where, and and again, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, uh, but it almost seems and obviously you can disagree with me here um, but yankee fans in a way are desensitized to winning
0: you're where certainly right
1: yeah obviously they can they can enjoy it and they can relish it and they'll remember it forever but when when the mets win it's it's an added degree of fanaticism and this certain desperation that's finally quenched in a way where you know, these non-World Series winning teams in Mets history, whether it's, you know, 1973 or 2000 or 2015, or even a like the 1999 team that lost in the NLCS, like these are some of the most revered teams, and the players, like, they won't have to buy a drink in New York ever again. And for what? I mean, they didn't win a World Series, but still, it's just, it, it's, such a, it's such raw, impassioned love uh for for a winner because they they come so few and far between and uh 1969 was really that that first team where uh you know it, it really put the mets on the map and they weren't just lovable losers so um obviously a huge moment in franchise history there
0: you know speaking of lovable losers and going back to what we talked about with the chicago cubs having to wait a while a while being 108 years for their reclaim of a world series 69 the Cubs were in the race for the pennant with the Mets were they not
1: they were and it was that famed black cat that came yep. running out uh in front of the Cubs dugout in that August game and uh yeah the Cubs had the, the Cubs had that divisional lead for a majority of the season and and really they they only lost it in um I, I think it was either August or September and uh
0: yeah, their uh, their
1: torture had to last a, a little while longer. Oh
0: my gosh, I I couldn't imagine that. As much as even Jets fans like to say, "Oh, it's been so long. We stink. We this. We that." Could you imagine people going through entire lifetimes without witnessing a championship? A, a literal lifetime.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and really, that's what I think I loved so much about the Cubs winning. Uh, in 20, you know, a few years back where it was, you know, they won and, and you just saw all these people, they just flocked to cemeteries and they saw their, you know, they went and they visited their fathers and their grandfathers, or sometimes their great grandfathers who, again, you said, they lived their entire lives. They li- they were born, they lived, they died full, healthy, rich lives, and they did not see their team in a World Series. And that's something where, you know, I, I think a lot of teams whose fans have had to wait a long time, and not not even so much the Mets, and it's been a 34, 35 year wait for them. But you know, you think of the Cleveland Indians; they haven't won since forty eight. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's that creeping dread where it's like, oh my god, am I gonna am I gonna die before my team wins a World Series? You know, and it's 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 such a daunting thought because really, what is that? fanaticism that fanaticism never really pays off it's you know it's almost in a way it's this blind loyalty and um you know kind of dealing with that possibility is is such a depressing thought because you, you know you 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 feel like you're almost as invested as the players themselves and obviously you're not you don't put in as much work as they do but you love the team more than any player or or any front office member can, and and most fans will say, well, I'm the biggest fan of this team, and I'm the biggest fan of this player, but um, you obviously invest a lot. You invest your hard-earned money, um, you go to games, you buy merchandise, you, you know, you'll,
0: you'll you tattoo yourself the team.
1: with your favorite team or your player, and, you know, thinking that you'll never be able to share that joy um, with you know, your peers, with your dad, with your friends. It's, uh, you know, it's, it, it is a it's a disconcerting thought.
0: You know, to me, when Anthony Rizzo made that final out in the, I believe it was 2016 World Series, yep. all that I can imagine happening is as, as he catches the ball, he just looks up and just like Hayden Christensen in the new version of Return of the Jedi, he just sees like a force ghost appear. Of Harry Carey, just becoming like one with the force oh, as yeah. this happens, but that—that that yeah. really, that's how to describe the moment. It's like the you have done what the generations before you have put their trust into you to do, and and same with the Mets. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been,
1: you know, again, thirty-four years in the grand scheme of things isn't that long, but you know, I. I grew up a Mets fan. I was born in 1991, you know, and the Mets won a World Series, uh, you know, my father was 25, and, uh, you know, now my father's, uh, you know, 58, and he's, you know, he's still waiting, and, uh, you know, when I was a kid, there was really nothing, nothing more I wanted than, you know, I, I want the Mets to, you know, I wanted the Mets to win a World Series, and I wanted to watch a game with my dad, and... You know, I wanted to give my dad the, the biggest hug and, you know, say, hey, you know what? Your wait's over. Um, and you know what? They're, we're still waiting for that day. And um, obviously, like you said, with, the, with these four scores, there's so many great players that have come before. And, and obviously, you can look at the Cubs. I mean, the, the, the amount of Hall of Famers and greats that they've had um, that, that couldn't win one uh, is, is just astounding whether it's, you know, Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, Fergie Jenkins, Ron Santo, Ryan Sandberg. I mean, um, you know, you you feel for them and and they're always in that debate. You know, who are some of the greatest players that never won a world series? And Ernie Banks is obviously amongst the top of that list. And, you know, finally, you you know, you celebrate and, um, you know, you obviously feel great for Cubs fans, but you also feel great for those old Cubs players and, you know Ron Ron Santo who was just as big a cub as Ernie Banks. He he died in twenty ten. You know he, he couldn't see it, and you know it, it's stuff like that. You you just you you're happy for the fans, but you're also just there's almost like a relief. Like you know what? Okay, well now they can rest in peace, and now they can kind of enjoy it from wherever their perch is amongst the cosmos. So become uh, one with that's the force. Like to
0: think. Fortunately, the teams that I've supported. I believe with the exception of one, I've – with the exception of two, with the exception of three. Sorry, it's just in my head. (laughs) Fortunately, I've seen a good amount of championships in my lifetime. But – and to me, just imagining that that's not guaranteed for some people, that you'll get one at least. At least you'll get one before you die. That's that's unfathomable. And we could go into this all day. And I'm sure, especially if we do have to wait another two months for baseball, we're going to be talking more about these legendary moments and almost quirks to the game, if you will. But now let's go to another team that I think a majority of New York was enjoyed that they shared a curse for so long and that is when the New York Yankees played the Boston Red Sox in the American League East tiebreaker game in 1978 but this is more commonly referred to as the Bucky Dent game at Fenway Park and Joe i think i know you know about this
1: uh yeah it was uh like you said a, a one game extension uh to major league baseball's 1978 regular season um it was played at you know played at Fenway Park and uh, I mean, what better theater uh, than this? It was, um, you know, one of the greatest rivals in, uh, rivalries in baseball history. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, going off the top of my head here, I think it was Ron Guidry who started for the Yankees, and Mike Torres started for the Red Sox, and, uh, you know, the Sox take a one nothing lead in the second. Um, I think it was Carl Yastrzemski uh, singled in Jim Rice, I think. Uh, two Hall of Famers right there, and um, yeah, and then the, uh, you know, the Red Sox were just trying to close out the game, and sure enough, light hitting Bucky Dent, comes up in the seventh inning, and he just kind of hits fly ball, Uh, you know, seems innocent enough, and it just kept carrying, and carrying, and carrying, and carrying, and and, uh, yeah, next thing you know, it's over the wall, it's a three-run homer, and uh, Boston's, Boston's weight continues.
0: So what I love about that, and again, to go to almost the the folklore or the myth that is involved in so many of baseball's most outstanding moments, particularly, it almost feels like in New York, just like many other elements of New York culture, when it happens in New York, it's just that much more exciting or that much more of a, a grand story, like when Bucky Dent breaks his bat mid at bat before he hits it out. And again, light hitting, he, he never really had a powerful season. And then I know one of his teammates just gives him what was not a tree trunk of a bat. But they, they give him something with a little bit more power than what he's used to. Because again, you know, he was a guy meant to, in the Billy Bean sense, get on base. But now it's like, throw that all aside. We need you to hit a home run. Breaks his bat, which is almost fate in a way. Gets the new one, the the thicker one, and he just lets it rip. You you see it go over the sit go sign, and the other thing, I believe that was like that was a weekday game, which made it even more exciting for for whatever reason. And I've talked to you about this. I'm a junkie for one game playoffs. I think that they're the most exciting thing in the world, especially when it's done like on a regular weekday. It doesn't get the prime time Saturday night everything. It's just like. This is a normal day. Everyone just drops what they're doing. There's a ball game on. And and the stadium's all packed. Everyone calls in sick for work that day. Uh, Fortunately, we get to work on those days. But it's just like, I don't know. There's something about that where, to me, it is like the equivalent of like seeing a rainbow for baseball. Because it doesn't happen that often.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And... and I kind of used to equate day baseball to a religious experience of sorts where, you know, for most of the game's beginnings, uh, you know, the the first three or four or five decades, uh, that's all you knew. Uh, There were no floodlights. There was no night baseball. And, uh, you know, it really didn't become popularized until the 40s and 50s. Um, Hey, I mean, the Cubs didn't play a night game until the 80s. Um, So... I mean, it's baseball in one of its purest forms, um, and especially, um, you know, having a one-game playoff such as that during the day. Um, it wasn't too far of a cry off from what a lot of baseball fans at the time were used to because there were still day World Series games in a way, which is fantastic. But, I mean, I I, I just want to make sure we kind of properly describe just how um, – much of an anomaly Bucky Dent's home run was. Um, and, and I did make a mistake. I just want to correct myself. Um, the Red Sox, they had the 2-0 lead before um, Dent's home run. It was a home run by Yastrzemski and an RBI single by Jim Rice. Um, so Yastrzemski heading into that game in his previous 20 games was hitting 140, no home runs. He breaks his bat. And he borrows the bat of Mickey Rivers. Um, And he goes on to hit the home run. Um, There seems to be controversy that comes from it. I guess there are people out there who believe that uh, Rivers' bat was corked. Uh, Obviously not to dense knowledge. Um, But again, if you have the time, do a little bit of research on that because that's another fun little conspiracy theory in baseball.
0: You know, I love talking about the behind the scenes stuff of all of these moments because uh, I've heard of that, but I didn't know that it was so big that there was controversy that they gave him, you know, kind of a jacked bat to use. And of course, uh, when you look back in baseball history, something like the, uh, the George Brett affair, you know, there are plenty of instances where the wrong bat can cause the right trouble in a way.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, um, You know, it it seems as though really uh, the way these instances have been reported that they kind of come few and far between. Uh, Really, it's been – court bats have been a problem for a long time, and uh, that's one of the instances. I mean, there are rumors that have been going around for years that Pete Rose, baseball's hit king, who is not, uh, you know –
0: Recognized?
1: Not not, not recognized. He's – you know, he, he doesn't shy away from controversy, obviously, uh, given his gambling backgrounds and everything. But there are stories saying that for his entire career, um, Rose Corked is bad. Really? Yeah. Uh yeah. And because it and never caused red flags because he was he wasn't a power hitter. Um so it, I mean, you know, it's it's again, if if you have the time, just kinda look it up and, and You know, even even before steroids and stuff, whether it was a ball player using greenies or uh, amphetamines or one time Babe Ruth injected himself with uh, some sort of like essence of goat testicle, I believe. It was something like that, uh, looking to get an advantage. Um, So, you know, for as long as there's been baseball, there have been people who have been trying to find ways to uh, get an upper hand. Um, So, you know, props for creativity, I guess. And if you can get away with it, so be it.
0: (laughs) Well, we could really keep going and going and going on this list. And as we go through time, I'm going to let you say something on the 1986 World Series. I'm almost going to forego the Yankees of the 1990s just because that deserves its own show. But if you're (laughs) not aware there are a lot of great moments that came from Joe Torrey's Yankees. So, Joe, I'm going to let you say something about the 86 Mets, and then I want to jump into a few more modern moments, even if they weren't necessarily championship caliber. Sure.
1: Um, the 86 Mets are regarded as the greatest team in franchise history. They, they won 108 games, and uh, you know they gang-busted their way to uh, the World Series against the Boston Red Sox. And... Um, you know, this is a team of, I, I really don't know how to put it, but, uh, it was a team of bad boys and party animals and troublemakers. And, uh, not only would they beat you on the scoreboard, but, uh, they'd beat you if you wanted to, uh, drop the glove, so to speak, or, um, you know, in a war of words or however you would like. Um, but it, I mean, it was, you know, an incredible team, uh, a collection of talent that the Mets really don't see too often in their franchise history. Um, and yeah, they they make the 86 World Series, and considering that this is a franchise that can never make anything easy, they're staring down the barrel of elimination in Game 6. Um, you know, they're down to their final, uh, you know, final out in extra innings, and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you know this story. Uh, this furious rally um, with singles by Gary Carter and Ray Knight, and you know, a, a wild pitch and a slow roller from Mookie Wilson up the first baseline behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight. The Mets win it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, really, it's um, it, it, that's one of the marquee moments in baseball history obviously at the expense of uh, a true professional in in Bill Buckner may he rest in peace and um you know the the Red Sox curse continued they would lose game seven and the Mets would win their second ever World Series and uh their last up until this date yeah I mean you really can't say enough about the colorful characters of that team because whatever it was that 10th inning um I think it was Wally Backman and Keith Hernandez made the first two outs and uh, they send up a pinch hitter in Kevin Mitchell um, and he's like halfway in the locker room and he has like his pants off because he's like he, he didn't want to watch him uh, watch the Red Sox celebrate on uh, on Shea Stadium's field so he gets called in and he's kind of pulling up his pants and like running out to pinch hit and sure enough he you know he singles and you know Carter and and Knight do the same, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. And uh, there's Keith Hernandez, you know, after saying that he was just sitting in the uh, sitting in the dugout drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette, kind of waiting <laughs> for the inevitable. And as soon as that rally started, he said I couldn't leave my uh, I couldn't leave my seat because that had hits in it. And well, I guess it paid off.
0: So uh, kind of like what happened with uh, the quote Steve Bartman affair in two thousand three with the Chicago Cubs. People don't necessarily know that there was a Game 7 plate. So to put all the voodoo on Bill Buckner from losing that World Series to the Red Sox is harshly unfair. Because there was still a Game 7. It was like, okay, we had our mistake, whatever. We go out, we win tonight. But no, the Mets were the better team. The Mets didn't get lucky, per se. Did they get... A good roll on a, a ground ball, yes, but they still had to win Game Seven. Sox could have came out, won that thing twelve nothing. No one would have remembered Buckner's error, right? And, and it's the same thing, like I'm saying with the Chicago Cubs after the Bartman game. Cubs choked in Game Seven. It's the same thing. So it's unfair to the people, and you know where I come from in teams that I support in baseball. It is unfair to say that the '86 Mets were nothing. But champions, they did not knock out Lucky. I
1: I completely agree, and uh, really, it, it's worth noting that you know the game was tied when Wilson hit that grounder. It wasn't like the Red Sox had you know were holding that lead. They they had already blown the lead. It was that uh, wild pitch from I think it was I want to say it was Bob Stanley uh, who threw the wild pitch, um, him or Bruce Hurst. And um, yeah, I mean. You know the game was already tied, so and and the Red Sox they they had a two nothing lead or a three nothing lead um, in game seven, uh, going into the sixth inning, and then the Mets kind of, you know, they kind of blew the doors off and they scored eight runs in the final three innings and you know came away with the title. But I, I it's it's always unfair how people well again it's it's uneducated people who put all the blame on. Buckner for that instance and it's unfortunate that a guy with you know a 20-year playing career and 2,700 career hits uh, his legacy is sort of whittled down to that exact moment but unfortunately that's what that's what happens in baseball and there's a few other instances but for the sake of saving time I really won't go into them but uh, yeah those are the breaks unfortunately.
0: And now to move forward again we're going to kind of Fast forward over the next uh, 20, 25 years, just to mention some honorable mention ones that are very worthy of anything. Like I said, pretty much anything the New York Yankees did in the 1990s, or at least the second half of the 1990s. That was one of the greatest dynasties to ever be played. Up next for me, and this is a, a moment we've both touched on before, that kind of, I think, shaped baseball in New York, and that is... The Mike Piazza home run after September 11th in the eighth inning against the Atlanta Braves. I'll never forget hearing Howie Rose's call on that. It really just rejuvenated the city. And then that same season, you get the Mr. November play from Derek Jeter, which for the first time in the history of the universe, America was really rooting for the New York Yankees after everything that happened with September 11th, of course, we all know that the Arizona Diamondbacks took the series that year, but still that that helped get New York off the ground. There was still miles to go on the journey, but I think that having that World Series, almost in a parallel way now, of course very different circumstances, but having baseball this year and having both the Mets and the Yankees be competitive could be the first step we take into returning to normalcy after coronavirus and the toll it has taken not just on the nation, but on New York in particular. And just to keep moving forward again in the interest of time, two seasons later you have Aaron Boone against the Boston Red Sox. That is, again, it just feels like when you talk about the New York teams, it's just how can we one-up the story? and that is to make a Game 7 of the ALCS between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. You hit an extra innings home run against your arch nemesis. Rival doesn't even do the, do it justice. They are nemesis. They despise each other. They hate each other's guts. And Aaron Boone, who now manages the New York Yankees, gets them over the hump. They go to the World Series. Of course, they fall short to the Marlins that year who – Did everything with Steve Bartman, not really Bartman, but the Chicago Cubs in 2003. I think the next big moment, really big moment, is when Derek Jeter hits number 3000. And of course he hits, and again, like it's just like the way it happens in New York is just better. It's not just number 3,000, it's a home run in Yankee Stadium. And I was at the game as a high school kid. I was screaming and yelling. And something that sticks out in my head, and I hope people listening that were at the game remember this too, the organist just starts doing a little little buzz for everyone to start going, Derek Jeter, and you hear the, the thunderous clap and everything. But right before the pitch, the organ cuts out, and the crowd keeps the chant going one more time. So you hear this, and you can hear it when you play it back. You hear this a cappella of everyone just saying, Derek Jeter. You just hear the crack of the bat. It, it was, that to me is one of the most mythological moments in, in baseball history where it almost seemed like Homer had just wrote this as a as a greek legend a, a greek legacy of course the ball goes flying into the the bleachers right above the state farm sign and oh seeing that live but more than seeing it live hearing that live that really that was a surreal moment
1: yeah it's 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 funny how you know some of our greatest memories of childhood no matter how old you are um You know, they always kind of come back to, you know, they come back to sports, but for a lot of us, they they come back to baseball, where our our greatest summer days are spent at the ballpark, and, uh, you know, you you were at that one game where this one thing happened, and um, or you saw this one player who's, you know, now a Hall of Famer, or wherever he might be, but it's just, um, you know, that's what's so storybook about baseball, it's... uh, you know it it's it's not above hyperbole or it's not above clichés in a way where if if the script is fitting and uh you know the stars align then you know you have something that comes out of hollywood and and, and that's really how it's been for for ages uh, for as long as the game's been around so it's i don't know it's uh it's just one of those one of those games where you know what, every once in a while, the, the the good guy does come out on top in real life. And you know what the, all the bad guys do? Uh, you know, sometimes they, you know, they win too, but it's, you know, it, it makes the wins all the sweeter. It's, uh, you know, it, it's hard to quantify just how perfect baseball is uh, when it comes to stuff like that. And, uh, you know, hey, you talk about that one moment or that right moment, and you still get goosebumps to this day. Um you know, something as trivial as, you know, when I was a kid, I I went and sat right behind home plate for uh, Mets Phillies regular season game in like 1999. It was nothing; it was a nothing game. And uh, you know, Mike Piazza hits a walk off home run to beat the Philadelphia Phillies, and you know, you still talk about it to this day. You get goosebumps because you know it's it's that pure, unadulterated wave of nostalgia. Uh, that comes back, and and, and in in an instant you're you're kind of transported back to when, you know, times were simpler and, you know, the world was a better place and, uh, you know, kind of represented all the things that were good in your life at the
0: time. There is a purity to baseball that other sports, not that they can't match, but they just do it in a different way. And it's something, I feel like, watching baseball it's not something seen but something felt
1: yeah yeah no i i can agree with that because it's you know it 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 fills the senses in a way that you know some other things just kind of fall short at where you know even if you say a word or you say a phrase where you know somebody comes up to me and says you know shea stadium boom like i can tell you Exact, you know everything about it. What it smelled like, uh, you know, at at the mezzanine level, or what it smelled like down by the field, and uh, you know the the vibrance of of the place and this and the colors and I, it's 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 a time machine, you know. It 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 can just take you back, and uh, you know that now you're stuck here in 2020, and you miss those days just a little bit more.
0: Yeah, you really do. Um, Three recent playoff series that I want to talk about. I think you're going to like the first one I'm going to bring up because, again, it, it takes you back to what I'm going to say was the most epic battle for the New York Mets in in this new millennium, and that is the Mets-Dodgers series from 2015.
1: Yeah, that was, um, you know, the Mets kind of entered the playoffs in 2015 where they were They were kind of that team that nobody wanted to play. Um, Really, because for 75% of that season, they were, you know, they they were a nice little team that had great starting pitching, but nothing else. Um, And then the Mets go out at the trade deadline, and they get Yohannes Cespedes, and then they go on the tear. Um, They win the division, and... You know, you go into the NLDS and you're playing an experienced Dodgers team that has owned the National League West for years now. And um, naturally, they, you know, they aren't the favorites because, I mean, the Dodgers are a good, a good team and they are seemingly a good team every year. And um, really, it, you know, it, it went the distance. It went five games and, and to win in L.A., um, you know, getting around a guy like Clayton Kershaw and Daniel Murphy's heroics—that uh, was huge. Um, where it kind of gave best fans the inkling of, uh, you know, what? Hey, maybe, you know, maybe we are looking at something special here. And it, it really made the NLCS a, a cakewalk in a way, um, just because there was so much going on in that um, in that NLDS with uh, you know Chase Utley's slide and. Uh, breaking Ruben Tejada's legs, and that became a rallying cry. And uh, David Wright coming up clutch, and yeah, that was uh, that was one of the more entertaining divisional series in in quite some time. And uh, they certainly rode the wave into the NLCS and and took care of the Cubs, and and they ran into the buzzsaw that was the Royals. Yeah,
0: that was not exactly story or a storybook ending for the conclusion of the 2015 season. But I don't know. I always, I remember I was in college. I was at Hofstra university watching these games and a couple of points stuck out to me about the 2015 Mets because I just, I really admired the heck out of them. I really did. That was a team that I hadn't felt that much energy since the Yankees were last in the world series. And one point that I'm sure you're going to agree with, how is Chase Utley not called out on that play?
1: That's a great question because I, 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 I remember I said it. I said, well, I just I don't know baseball then. Like I don't know the rules of baseball because, uh, you know, it seemed pretty textbook there. But, uh, you know, you run into a lot of Mets fans who, who will always say that the world is against them, and that was just another, uh, another example
0: Uh, To quote uh, Pink Floyd, that really did seem like another brick in the wall on that one. Um, But that Mets team, now that was the year with Wilmer Flores, with the crying, right?
1: Yes, it was. Yep. And that was kind of the, well, that was one of the sparks of the season where uh, right at the trade deadline in late July, um, you know, reports came down that the Mets had traded Wilmer. and Zach Wheeler to the Milwaukee Brewers for Carlos Gomez, who at the time was an all-star, an original Met prospect who they traded away, and of course he had his best years elsewhere. Um, and, you know, during the game, these reports are coming down, and nothing's made official yet. So usually what happens is when a trade is done, uh, even if it's during the game, the manager will come out, grab the player, take him off, make sure that he doesn't get injured. Um... All well, the Mets didn't do that. Uh, Manager Terry Collins didn't do that. And later he says that he never got the memo, Um and rightfully so. But at the time, uh, everybody kind of knew that Wilmer Flores was going to get traded, including Wilmer Flores, because the fans were telling him. Uh, and he heard, and that's where those famous shots come from, where he makes the realization that he's being traded from an organization that he had been with since he was 16 years old. Uh, and there he is, crying at shortstop. And uh, but he stays in. And after the game, Sandy Alderson comes down and says, uh, "Nope, there was a snag in the trade. There is no deal." And then a few nights later, against the Washington Nationals, who the Mets were nipping at the heels of at the time, uh, he hits a walk-off home run. Uh, and that is that is storybook fashion, right there.
0: That uh, that really is. And I remember ever since I. I caught that on like Facebook, the clip of him crying, finding out that uh, the trade falls through. From that moment on, of course, I was also keeping track with the Yankees, who had a disappointing run in the wildcard, losing again to Houston. I think a lot of people forget that the Yankees, technically speaking, have lost three series in a row to the Houston Astros. And that, that wildcard game, getting shut out at home, just jabs at me. Besides the point, I remember I really started paying attention to the Mets team that year. And it was, I'm going to say that was the second most exciting, or I don't even know if you could say second most. That was certainly one of the most exciting teams to come out of New York this millennium. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the 2015 Mets. And I hope that there's a way for players that were on that team to... Maybe not in such a forced ghost-esque way, but I hope that there's a way that they could cross over the final river and and win it all. I would love to see that, as long as it's not against the New York Yankees.
1: Yeah, that's fine. I, I really don't think that the city right now could handle a Subway series on top of everything that it's oh been uh, going through over the past few months.
0: Yeah, that would, uh, oh, the time and place, and now <laughs> it's not the time. Exactly. We need I mean, to unify under one team that makes the World <laughs> Series. No more division. Right?
1: We have a we have a second coming of the plague. We have murder hornets, so <sighs> let's also let's also throw in a, a subway series where uh you know New York will literally implode on itself.
0: That would um that would you would get voluntarily people social distancing from one another if that oh, would make sense. <laughs> um two other teams both uh or two teams, one particularly for its divisional round and another for a bunch of other reasons, the Yankees-Orioles ALDS from 2012 sticks out in my head as one of the most fun, exciting, energetic, close to, not exactly down to the wire, but as close as you can get to being down to the wire. And for fans that don't remember, this was the Raul Ibanez series. When in game three, he ties the game in the ninth inning with a home run, gets up an extra innings, clocks it again, he is my second favorite short tenured Yankee from the recent seasons. And I just remember that series was it was it felt like the first time in a while the Yankees had been challenged in in such an early round. And it was like, okay, Baltimore's not going to give the Yankees this. We got to fight tooth and nail and even because it went to the best of five. Yankees only won that game 3-1. to one. It, was, it was a close, exciting series. And to me personally, that really bolstered an energy that I don't think a lot of Yankees fans had felt since the last time they had won the World Series. And it just really felt like, okay, we're fallible. But this is what makes the Yankees moment so special is that for the first time, we feel like we're not the best of the best. And we gotta, we have to earn our pinstripes. In a way, saying we, of course, I'm talking about the team, not myself. It's a big pet peeve of mine when people say we, referring to themselves as part of the team. We're not. We're fans. We love it. We're reporters. (laughs) Other people, you know, um, I I just like being very clear on that. That That was a great series in my mind. And another one, the 2017 New York Yankees, especially knowing what we know now about Houston. That, to me, that was like the dream team. That was the, the start of the next man up mentality. I loved how Todd Frazier came in, and he was a force to be reckoned with that postseason. And I remember I saw his first bat at home at Yankee Stadium, his first bat at bat as a Yankee in the Bronx. The person I was with, we were in the bleachers, the bases were loaded and she's going come on Todd hit a home run hit a homer and just as she's saying that he puts the ball on the ground he gets into a triple play an rbi oh triple play and i'm just watching like what what the heck just happened you, you know you you think about those things and maybe you watch the clips on youtube but that was like the first time i ever saw that live and i was like oh well well that's not a good sign <laughs> Yeah, for a Yankee
1: fan, that's uh, definitely not the first way you want to see a, a triple play live, for sure.
0: But um, <laughs> but then that postseason, I remember Joe Givardi makes the big mistake in Game 2 and not challenging the hit-by-pitch against the Cleveland Indians in that ALDS. And the locker room, or the clubhouse, I should say, really turned on the manager in a sense that he felt like... Going into this, they were now down 0-2. They were in this hole. It was insurmountable against the Cleveland Indians who were speculated to be the World Series champions. And again, the Yanks came into an uncommon situation where they were the underdog. And I remember there was a shot after Todd Frazier was pulled out. He was. Um, they put Ronnie Torres in to pinch run for him. Torres got picked off. They cut to... The dugout where you see Todd Frazier looking not at Joe Girardi, but looking through him with such malice and such anger. And then from there, you know the story: the Yankees come home, they fight off a brutal one-nothing game three to stay alive. They kill it in game four. They go back to Cleveland in game five. And I will never forget Brett Gardner's ninth inning at bat, where he just he would not go down. You know, to, to quote kicking and screaming, I took a punch from Mike Ditko, but I did not go down. I wobbled, but I did not go down. He took like 13 pitches. He keeps fouling them off, fouling them off, and he finally gets a hit, keeps the Yankees, and ensures their lead. To me, that was the greatest camaraderie I had ever seen in a team. And that also, going back to Todd Frazier, because he, again, is he's my favorite short-tenured Yankee. I admired so much about the spirit and the energy that he brought to the clubhouse. And, oh man, just the the whole thumbs down thing, which actually happened at City Field, ironically enough, because Tampa Bay was playing a home game there against the Yankees. That was a crazy time. I actually got to witness that, which was pretty fun. But that 2017 Yankees team, that to me just embodied the spirit of baseball. That, that's the only way to put it. They looked like kids out there having fun when they'd do the thumbs down after getting a hit. And then it, it started with Didi Gregorius getting his three-run homer in the wild card game against Minnesota, which I swear, if you look at a Richter scale, there was seismic activity in the Bronx because Yankee Stadium just shook when that happened. And then the the comeback against Cleveland, the heroic series against the Houston Astros. And again, what bothers me most about the scandal not is that the Yankees should have won the playoff series, but the Yankees would have had most likely a better regular season record and have played a game seven at home where Houston would not have had that advantage, and then, as they did in the rest of the home games at Yankee Stadium, Yanks probably would have buried them, but speaking of we' got to bury that issue, give it to Houston when they come to the Bronx, now we just think about winning. That is my digression on recent baseball.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was that was pretty comprehensive there, and, and <laughs> obviously you, you kind of wonder where Joe Girardi might have been also if um, you know, say, if the Astros didn't necessarily cheat, for lack of a better word. But um, it's been uh, really the Yankees in in twenty seventeen. With that whole abbreviated rebuild, that was a team that it, it actually humanized the franchise, I think, for a lot of baseball fans. Where you know, again, that the Yankees have always been this evil empire, robotic team in pinstripes, where they just kind of go in and they do their business and they beat you and they leave. Um, yeah, this was this was really the first time where you know, I remember I could remember hearing neutral baseball fans, you know, saying. Wow, you know what? The Yankees are fun. You know, like it's fun to watch the Yankees. Maybe because it, you know, there was an essence of unpredictability that came with the uh, competitiveness. But um, yeah, it was it was really one of those times where you know the Yankees were actually getting a pretty decent amount of support, and obviously there's a large action of the United States baseball viewing public that will abhor the Yankees until kingdom come but um, really that was uh, 2017 that was one of those years where you know I think a lot of New Yorkers regardless of rooting interests were really just kind of enjoyed watching the Yankees and uh, you know that ride they went on in 2017 that was that was pretty remarkable just just because it was so, so ahead of schedule uh, I, I don't think going into 2017, a lot of people thought that the Yankees would, would do that. Uh, you know, we all thought that it was going to be a rebuild. And, you know, I I can't tell you how many times I said it. I said I've, I've never seen a professional sports franchise pull off a one-year or half-year rebuild, but the Yankees somehow found a way to do it.
0: You know, here they are
1: again, and getting ready for 2020, where they're favorites to win the whole thing.
0: I... If not the Mets, I sincerely do hope that the Yankees win this year's World Series, more than it being just to, to put another notch on the belt or to get much warranted revenge against the Houston Astros. But right now, this is the championship New York needs, I believe.
1: And and they, they need to go through Houston somehow. Oh, yeah. Like, that. that's the caveat. Like, sure— you know, Yankee fans will feel, yo, we've waited so long, it's been 11 years, you know, cry me a river. Um, but <laughs> at, at at the same time, you know, there's there would be so much satisfaction where I think the Yankees would get an overwhelming amount of support from, I guess, a neutral fans or even fans that were, you know, normally rivals um, where – You know, if if the Yankees meet the Astros in some kind of ALCS of some sort, depending on how the league is, uh, you know, divvied up, if they return this summer, um, yeah, they they have to go through the Astros to really kind of exercise those demons.
0: They'll uh, they'll certainly be getting the support of Southern California on that. And the way I envision it, because I I swear— the next time the Yankees and Houston meet in a playoff series, that is going to be a sweep. If it's in the ALDS, it's going to be a two-game sweep because Houston will forfeit. Or <laughs> in the ALS, like, it it's going to be the most intense baseball beatdown. Because, to quote I don't know how many movies, you just made it personal when, when you find that out. And I think... You're going to see it most from Aaron Judge, just smacking the living daylights out of every ball. Because, again, when you look at how close the MVP race was in 2017 between Aaron Judge and Jose Altuve, and then you realize one guy knew it was going to be thrown at him, you can identify that as being the extenuating circumstance. And if I think that, I'm sure Aaron Judge has stronger thoughts on the matter. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'll leave it yeah i mean i'll leave it at that and it's going to be like the end of the departed when mark Wahlberg's just waiting for matt damon in the apartment that's the best way to describe it
1: yeah and, and i'll and i'll say this you know i think that's how you know aaron judge is a better man than you or me or a lot of us because he took the high road after this whole thing came out and uh you know said yeah you know what jose uh you know what he won the mvp it is what it is and, And that's that. But I I hope and I pray whenever this day comes that the Yankees and the Astros meet, even if it's in the regular season or if it's in the playoffs, especially if it's in the playoffs, that there are fans allowed in the ballpark because we need our purchase on press row at Yankee Stadium. So we're safe uh, just to see the madness and the anarchy that will ensue inside Yankee Stadium because it will it'll be a madhouse
0: if there's no way to get fans involved, what I hope the city can do kind of like what they do outside of Rockefeller center with the big virtual window display where you see the timer and then, you know, every two minutes the show starts. I hope that there's a way that they can project the games onto buildings throughout the city where people can watch from their apartments. Literally.
1: Yeah. That'd be, that'd be really cool. And yeah. Cause of course, like it, it, You know, the current climate of things, it it eliminates the opportunity of having, say, watch parties where everybody can kind of gather in the square and watch like, uh, you know, we've seen in years past of these fans aggregating outside of stadiums or, you know, public squares or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, you know, something to kind of tie it all together. That would be really cool.
0: Um, I think there's a way to do it. Project it on the Empire State Building. Project it on 30 Rock. Or, or wherever it's going to be. Don't do it on a residential building, because then people in there can't watch it. But I'm sure that there are ways Or are blasted on every single huge billboard. Make it so that the city knows that even if we're not there, we're still there.
1: Right. Right. That's, you know, create some kind of hometown advantage, I guess, which is going to be difficult. But Again, you know, it's it's so unpredictable where, who knows, maybe at some point in four or five or six months we can kind of get everybody together and we can all sit down and, and watch a baseball game.
0: I I could – we all need that, not just me. We We need that. And I believe that day is coming, and the more that everyone behaves themselves, follows – proper protocol the closer we are you know it, it's like it's like working or doing chores you you do it so you can get to the fun stuff let's all be on our best behavior for the next few months wear your masks wash your hands don't do anything foolhardy as uh the as a billboard read or a safety message read in new jersey don't be a knucklehead you know, let, let's be smart let's go about this the right way let's get baseball back let's get healthy Joe, before I sign off, do you have any final thoughts on this?
1: Uh, No, I mean, you know, read a book, do your research. There's a lot to learn about baseball, obviously. But, uh, yeah, get out of the parks. Don't go to the beach. uh, Think of others, please. You know, you might feel good. You might feel invincible. But uh, not everybody is afforded that opportunity or that mindset. So, you know what, do the right thing. Make a little sacrifice here and there if you have to. Um, find a hobby, darn it. And, and, and again, it'll it'll blow over sooner rather than later. Then.
0: You're certainly right about that. And you know, like I keep saying, the quicker we get this done, the quicker we can go have fun. I think that's the best way to. That's a good little rhyme. I think that goes with everything. The quicker we get this done, the quicker we have fun. So I love it. Yeah. Joe, once again, thank you for coming on. You know we're going to do this again. We could really talk each other's ears off, and that's pretty impressive. And I truly believe and certainly hope that there are other baseball nerds out there like us that just love what we're putting out.
1: Yeah, I hope they enjoy it too. And as always, thank you again for having me on, Alex. And can't
0: wait to do it again. Of course, Joe. Be well. Stay safe. Wash your hands. You know the drill. (laughs) You too, brother. Take care. And that was AM Rush Sports. Stay tuned. We have a lot of fun stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks and days. So stay tuned, New York, and remember, wash your hands.